0: The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So here we have the backdrop to the whole story we're dealing with today. Jesus has had a two-year run in ministry. He's turned the world upside down rulers are angry at him kings are threatened by him the religious leaders are threatened and jealous of him some wanted to kill him and others wanted to follow him and isn't that just so true about our christ How wherever he shows up you have to take a position whenever jesus walked into a room everybody had to take a position either for him or against him, and both positions have always been extreme. And so, here Jesus walks into Jerusalem, and you can only imagine all of what was happening at this time. So, the first thing I want to do is I want to go through a few uh, things or a few reasons as to why this event took place. Why did Jesus come to Jerusalem? Why did Jesus come as the Lamb of God to be slain? Why the cross? Why so much blood? Why such violence? Why such wrath? And so let's look at this closer. First and foremost, why did Jesus come to die in Jerusalem? Number one, so that He could divide the light from the darkness. The truth from the lie. This is why He came. As a matter of fact, in John 18, verse 37, it says, Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Here's Jesus' purpose He says, This is the reason I was born. This is the purpose for me coming. Is so that I can testify to the truth. And immediately he divides truth from lie, the real from the fake, darkness from light, holiness from unholiness. You see, they wanted, as he walked in there, the crowd wanted to be saved from their crisis. That's why they shouted, Save us now! Hosanna! Rescue us now, Hosanna. Help us now, Hosanna. That's what they were shouting as their new king was walking into or came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. So they wanted to be saved from their crisis while Jesus came to testify to the truth. Two very different agendas. While they were celebrating their plans that they had for Jesus with palm trees, Jesus, on the other hand, was fulfilling the redemptive purposes of God. You see, the crowd and Jesus were not there for the same reason. Being oppressed by Roman authorities, the crowd expected Jesus to offer them freedom from life's hardships. But instead, He came to offer them freedom from their slavery to sin. You see, there was a divided expectation. His purpose was spiritual. Their purpose was practical, political, social. Their ultimate goal for Jesus was their own temporal political freedom, while Christ's ultimate goal for them was eternal salvation and reconciliation to the Father. You see, they had a temporal goal in mind. Jesus had an eternal goal in mind they had a natural goal in mind jesus had a spiritual goal in mind even though people's political expectations for jesus ran really high at the time we see no effort now watch this and please be open because i don't mind you searching this out yourself even though people's expectations For Jesus' political position ran really high, and they had high expectations as to what He could change for them under Roman rule. Even though that's what they expected, even though that's what they desired, even though that's what they demanded from Him, we don't see anywhere that Jesus made any effort to correct Pilate's political political, uh, political policies. Even though Jesus had the opportunity before Pilate, he never made any effort to change Pilate's political policies. We see no effort on Jesus's part to overthrow or even influence Herod's political policies. Jesus never demanded social justice reform from these political leaders ever. We don't see it. So I have had the privilege, and I'm just going to um, hover here for a little bit because I want to explain something to you because this is what happened the day of Palm Sunday. They had an expectation of political nature. Jesus came with a purpose of a spiritual nature. Theirs was temporal. His was eternal. And so we've got to look at this event and see how does it relate to you and I. Now to explain this, I want to let you know that I've been very privileged during this time of social distancing to spend some more time reading up on things and I've been able to read up on early church fathers and the history of the church. And some of these church fathers were trained uh, of the first century. They were trained under men like Timothy, who Paul raised up. They were trained under the apostle Paul, these early church fathers. They were trained under the apostle John. So these guys, when you read their works, it's almost like you're reading somebody who was personally involved, and it is so. You're reading somebody's work who was personally involved, or their sermons, that were personally involved with the Apostle Paul, personally involved with Timothy, personally involved with the Apostle John. So just like you and I, we like to turn on our favorite teacher who interprets the Word of God 2,000 years later. We can actually go and read these Early church fathers' books, their writings, their letters, their manuscripts. We can read the exact word-for-word manuscript that they wrote about what John said, what Paul said. And so, uh, I've I've been loving it. They've suddenly become my favorite teachers in the world today, even though they've been dead 2,000 years. It's fascinating stuff. I'll give you an example. Just like in Paul's epistle... Even though the church was under severe oppression from their Roman government, there is zero historical evidence of the early church fathers blasting or badmouthing, complaining or whining about their evil government and their wicked politicians. Nowhere do you see that. They are completely silent about their political leaders. The only thing you will ever hear and read them say is to pray for your authorities so that you may have a peaceable life. So Ignatius of Antioch was a man who lived in the first century. He became pastor of a church or bishop of the church in Antioch, which was kind of like the second largest, second most important church in the world at that day. The most important church was in Jerusalem. The second most important church was in Antioch, and there were a lot of Jews, there were a lot of Gentiles in this church, and Ignatius was the man who was the bishop at this church at this time. Now, Ignatius had to have a tremendous amount of insight into the Word of God and into scriptures. Why? Because he was hand-raised by the apostle John. John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, <laughs> the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, that John trained this man, Ignatius. And we still have all of Ignatius's sermons, his letters to different churches, as he was the bishop. And so it's kind of, it's kind of it's strange to read this. It's like, wow, these guys actually were trained by the Apostle John. And in this writing to the, book, to the church in Ephesus, he uh, writes on two issues, and you can Google his letters to Ephesus. You can read them yourself. He says this. <clears throat> he addresses false teaching inside of the church, number one, and then he addresses oppression from the outside world. Those two issues that I want to highlight out of the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. And so I want to go to chapter 7 of his letter to the Ephesians. I want to read to you what he said, regarding false teaching in the church he said for some are want of malicious guile to hawk about the name name in capital letters so what he's saying is some are going out in the church using the name of jesus and hawking in other words they selling promises they 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 blow in smoke these people are making money off of the name of christ inside of the church all right then he says, So, for some of them want of malice, guile to hawk about the name while they do certain other things unworthy of God. These men ye ought to shun. And then he starts name calling. He says, As wild beasts, for they are mad dogs, biting by stealth, against whom ye ought to be on your guard. Be on your guard, for they are hard to heal. <laughs> It's an amazing thing. When you find them, he says, be on your guard. They bite everything around them. They are money hungry. They hawk in the name of Christ. And watch out for them because they are hard to heal. They don't convert easily. They don't come to Christ easily. They love money. Verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, There is only one physician. And then he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We see, uh, when it comes to their letters, they are constantly, constantly warning against false teaching, attempting to pres- uh, preserve the absolute pure truth. Remember, Jesus came to do what? To testify to the truth. And then He called everybody to go and preach the truth. And then the fathers, the early church fathers, and even Apostle Paul, John, and all of the above, had to constantly fight to keep the purity of the Truth, because it is the truth that delivers; it is the truth that saves, and it's not a version thereof. And so we also see Polycarp when he had to speak. He was a, he was a contemporary of this Ignatius uh, that we're reading of. Polycarp lived at the same time, and they were dealing with uh, uh, a man by the name Marcion, who was a complete heretic. But he infiltrated the church, and he was able to get a lot of people gathered around him and he started his own churches. But every single early church father denounced him as a heretic. And when Polycarp one day saw him in public, he walked up to him and he called him, "You are." he said, you are the son of Satan. Now these guys were pointed, these guys were brave, these guys were bold, and these guys were about their father's business, which is what? To protect and preach and declare the undefiled truth of God. So when it came to false teachings, they were quick to point finger and say, this is wrong, that is wrong, this is what the Bible says. They were unashamedly like that, and they even went to, to name calling, which we don't do. And then in chapter 10, two chapters later, now, if that's how he's going to treat the people in the church who defile the message of God, let's see how he treats the people in the world who are persecuting and crushing the people of God. So we have these two pictures, all right? This is Ignatius. Let's see how he treats the people in the church who deceive versus the people in the world who persecute, who burn, who slaughter and throw Christians to wild beasts for sports because that's what was happening. These Christians in these churches were thrown into the arenas where there were hungry animals, and they had to fight these hungry animals, and that was their entertainment, the Romans' entertainment. So let's see what Ignatius tells the people of God to do when it comes to governmental and religious oppression. Chapter 10, verse 1, And pray ye also without ceasing for the rest of mankind, for there is in them a hope of repentance, that they may find God. Therefore, permit them to take lessons, at least from your works. Therefore, at least let them learn from your life. Against their outbursts of wrath, ye be meek. Against their proud words, ye be humble. Against their railings, set ye your prayers. Against their error, steadfast, ye be steadfast in the faith. Against their fierceness, ye be gentle. And be not zealous to imitate them by requital. What he's saying is, do not retaliate. And so do what they are doing to you. Don't do to them. Verse 3. Let us show ourselves their brothers by our forbearance. In other words, our restraint and our mercy, our tolerance of them. Let us show ourselves to be their brothers by our forbearance. But let us be zealous to be imitators of the Lord. Let us be zealous to be what? Imitators of Jesus. Now, watch this. Vying with one another, vying with each other, who shall suffer the greater wrong? vying with each other who shall be defrauded in the biggest way who shall be set at naught that no herb of the devil be found in you that no tiny little plant of satan grow up inside of you a little root of bitterness or nothing grow up in you because of them but in all purity and temperance abide ye in christ jesus wow this is a man by the the name Ignatius. We have his writings trained by the Apostle John. Somebody, like, I don't see his writings as scriptures. I don't. But I do see his writings equal and more so than any other minister you may find on the internet or any other minister you may find on TV. If you can listen to them, you better be listening to these guys. And man, how how contrasted that picture is, how they treated those who defiled the church from the inside versus those who killed the church from the outside. Those that were inside of the church and defiling the purity of the gospel, they name called them. You're the son of Satan, they said. But the ones who came and actually put Christians on a pole in a street threw tar on him and lit him on fire so that they can have light as they were walking down the street. Those people, ye be meek with them. Let your life be a message to them. You You have forbearance with them. Why? And he says it in the beginning. For the hope that they may repent, that God may offer them this repentance. It's an amazing thing. We in this day and age, we tend to have this the other way around, don't we? we openly bash political leaders we openly bash our authorities and the anti-christ culture out there in the world outside of the four walls of the church we openly bash them and we just we feel justified to do so but we are shocked we are horrified And we are absolutely offended the moment someone points out a false teaching in the body of Christ. That we were taught, take your hands off of because you're not allowed to touch the anointed of God. Well, that's not really something that's, that's in the Bible. That was taken out of a story where David did not touch Saul, which is a completely different situation. You see, when you look at this division there's a divided expectation where the work of the kingdom and the work of civil government and politics meet there's a divide there and for me this is an uncomfortable point that I saw inside the scriptures and throughout scriptures not just in the Old Testament but in the New Testament and then thereafter in the early church is the fact that we have been called to pray for our leaders That is our response. And when we see these things happen, we have another response. The Bible says, you stand and you look up for your redemption draws nigh. But nowhere are we told to bash and retaliate. We are to look up for our redemption draws nigh. God is sovereign and let us celebrate that about Him. The New Testament and the early church preached, we are to pray for our leaders. And when it said that, I want to mention to you that it was talking about Nero, who was extremely cruel. And we need to pray for our political leaders for the sake of their salvation and for our peaceful lives. And then we ought to shun false teaching for the sake of protecting the purity of the gospel, for the sake of everyone's eternal life. You see, the one works towards a temporal comfort. And the other one works towards eternal redemption. Which one would you say is more important? So by no means am I saying political service is not from God. I'm saying that we were never called to bash. We were called to pray for them. And those who persecute us, we ought to pray for them. And those who are our enemies, we ought to pray for them. Why? Because that is... Is our harvest field. So, our walkaway point here is do not miss the purpose of why Jesus came to die for you. Do not miss the purpose of why Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey to die for you. It was eternal in nature, not temporal in nature. It was for a kingdom, a future kingdom which is now, not for a democracy. Do not look at Jesus like they did on Palm Sunday. In the midst of a broken and dying world, Christ came to give you freedom from sin and death. This was His purpose. So we see, why did Jesus come to die in Jerusalem? He came first and foremost because He came to point out what is truth. He came to divide the light from the darkness, the truth from the lie. Number two, why did Jesus come to die? Why did He ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? So that He could absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. If Jesus received God's wrath, then why doesn't it seem like God's wrath is so very severe? Why does it seem like when you look at that picture, when you look at a movie, for instance, like, like Mel um, like Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, when you look at the crucifixion scene, why so bloody? Why so violent? Why so severe? Why, especially in the Old Testament, is God's wrath so, so extreme and so violent? Why does God take such great measures against sin? Why does He take our sin against each each other so personally to Himself? I mean, when you sin against your neighbor, why does He take it so personally to Himself? I always used to wonder this. Like, why doesn't God just calm down a little bit (laughs) and just kind of forgive everybody? But let me start by answering... Well, let me start answering this by saying because he's holy, he cannot be at peace with sin. Because he's holy, he cannot compromise with evil. Because he is just, he cannot remain neutral in the midst of transgressions. He cannot keep silent in the face of iniquity. Because he is just, he cannot remain indifferent in the presence of abuse. Because he is just, he cannot tolerate wickedness. Because he is just, he cannot and will not leave the scales of justice unbalanced. He has to balance them. That makes him just. And because he's a just judge, that makes him good. That's the reason God is good, is because he's a just judge. So I asked this question, but... Is God justified to be so filled with wrath, especially against a generation or a generally good human being? Let me ask that. I mean, how about all the generally good people? Why is He filled with wrath? And why did Jesus have to suffer for generally good people? Many, if not most humans, are generally decent, aren't they? Should decent and morally upstanding humans not rather receive a pat on the back instead of a threat of hellfire? Not all men are altogether bad, are they? I know a lot of real good people, and you always hear people say that. I know a lot of really, really good people, and I do not understand as to why God has to respond so extremely and so severely But it's because we don't quite understand the definition of sin. The definition of sin is probably much larger than what we have seen it in the past. So I want to play you this little video. I want you to pensively, thoughtfully listen to this. If you don't mind turning out all the other noises in the house, if somebody got up to go to the kitchen to grab a cup of coffee, make sure they're sitting down now. Because I want you to Focus on this, listen to every single word, and see the truth therein.
1: Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, Grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Why is it that people become so emotionally and morally indignant over poverty? Exploitation, Prejudice, abortion, infractions of our religious liberty, manifold injustices of man to man and feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, dishonored and thus belittled by millions and millions.
0: Sin is ultimately against God. It is not honoring God in one way or another. And when we look at that, we realize that every single one of us are in the exact same boat. Every single one of us, after listening to that definition of sin, will realize that every one of us need Jesus to save us from God, from God's wrath against our sin. You see, every sin will be paid for, whether it be in Christ, it'll be paid for, or in hell forever, it will be paid for. Why? Because God is a just God, and He cannot and He will not leave the scales of justice unbalanced. He is good, He is a good judge, and He will balance the scales of justice and when we look at that great need of humanity it's a massive need for every single man ever born because none of us honor god perfectly none of us love god perfectly none of us obey god perfectly we can't jesus did that's why he is the absolute only option for us He's the, only, he's the absolute only option to be the Lamb of God slain for our sins. Why? Because He had no sins of His own. And so the Bible says here, and this is the good news, for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says in John three thirty-six, the same book of John three sixteen, just go down a few verses, in John 3, 36 it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on the one who does not believe in Jesus Christ, who carried the wrath of God upon himself. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, This is your word today if you are in Christ Jesus. For God has not destined us for wrath, no, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll I'll read it to you this way. But God has not destined you to wrath. Instead, He has predestined you to obtain salvation through your Lord Jesus Christ. What a fantastic thought that God has destined you to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ that every single drop of God's wrath against you will be swallowed up in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus came to die in Jerusalem so that He could absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. You see, Jesus came into Jerusalem as a Lamb of God to be slaughtered by men and to be crushed by His Father. And you go like, His Father didn't crush Him. The Bible says it pleased God to crush His Son upon the cross. Why? Because that is how the wrath of God against your sin would be absorbed so that you wouldn't have to experience God's wrath. This is why you can proclaim God, you are good to me. This is why today you can proclaim, God, you are merciful to me. This is why you can proclaim, God, I have hope again. This is why you can declare, God loves me. There is nobody that can look at that event and say they're not loved. It's only a misunderstanding of that event that'll cause anybody to say, I'm not sure if God loves me. It's only the misinformation that comes that makes somebody go, oh, I'm not sure if I'm loved. That is the third reason why Jesus came to die. That's the third reason why He came in on a donkey into Jerusalem and everybody was shouting, deliver us now from our current circumstances. But He came. To deliver us from the very wrath of God. Why did He come? To display His love for us. And this is a short point. Because it's swallowed up in the previous point. God's love for us is declared by the cross. This is why He came. Because God loved us. And He obeyed God. God loved us so, He sent His Son. And His Son loved His Father so, He obeyed His Father God and died for us and so God blesses his son with a bride that he himself cleansed for his son you see all that is needed is a clear understanding of the gospel that's all that is needed and in so doing the devil will be unable to convince a man that God does not love him that is the only possible way A man can be convinced that god loves him and the only possible way he cannot be unconvinced of god's love is if he understands the gospel dr james white said this he said if you look at the cross and don't see the wrath of god against sin you are not seeing the love of god there either if you don't see how god's wrath fell upon sin on jesus why does god love you What makes you think God loves you? What other proof do you have in life that God loves you if you do not recognize that God's wrath fell on your sin at the cross? If you do not see that, you do not have one other possible evidence of God's love for you. You can come up with evidences, but you don't have scriptural evidences So number four, why did Jesus come to die? Why did Jesus come to die? He came to die so that He could deliver us from troubled hearts. He could deliver us from troubled hearts. Many people are burdened. Many people have troubled hearts because of the pandemic we're going through. But I want to mention to you that there's only one way. There's only one way to be delivered from a troubled heart. And Jesus tells us how. In John 14, verse 1 and 3, He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. I read that, and I thought, Well, Jesus, how does believing in You and in God cause my heart not to be troubled? How how is my heart suddenly no longer troubled because I believe in You? While well, Jesus goes on and He explains as to why our hearts won't be troubled. He says, In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, here we see Jesus doing two things. This is so important, this is so key, for you to not have a troubled heart jesus does two things right here number one he first clarifies that those who believe in him for them there is a promise to come and secondly he now articulates what that promise is and he says that he promises an eternal home with him so he says if you're in me and you believe me and you believe god there's a future promise and here's the promise a home in heaven an eternal home in heaven. Life as God has life forever and ever and ever for those who are in me, who believe me and believe my Father. So here Jesus takes the listener's mind off of their temporal troubled circumstances that's causing their hearts to be troubled. And He takes their mind and places their mind on eternal security and comfort. He says, this is my promise To you, stop looking at your current circumstances. This is my future promise for you. In order for you to have comfort in this life, you have to place your mind on eternal life to come. Now, you may have heard this before, but uh, Jesus was saying in the face of life-threatening moments, remember this. The worst that could ever happen to you is the best that could ever happen to you. The worst thing that could ever happen to you in a pandemic is possibly the best thing that could ever happen to you if you are in Christ. So let's see how Jesus does the exact same thing in another context. This is a very unfamiliar portion of Jesus' teaching, but let's look at it because I think it's extremely informative and helpful. So let's see how Jesus does this. There was a moment, some came to Jesus, and they were heavy hearted, And they questioned him about a tragedy that took place. A calamity, a disaster that took place in their community. They came to Jesus about this because their hearts were troubled. And since some people in their community were suffering because of this tragedy and because of this death that took place. Some by persecution and others by haphazard accident that took place in the area. So Jesus answers in a way that teaches us something. Christ's answer to them teaches us how we should deal with tragedy how we should deal with calamity and how we should deal with disaster and I want to pick it up in Luke 13 verse 1 through 5 if you have your Bibles please turn there with me Luke 13 verse 1 through 5 it says there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices so let's pause there okay This is is so over the top. Apparently, this political leader, Pilate, who was a pagan, murdered some Galileans and used their blood as part of the blood sacrifice that he was offering as a pagan. He murdered people to take their blood for part of his offering. And now these people who possibly had loved, uh, lost loved ones because of this came to Jesus and said, what about this? And Jesus answered them. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Let me rephrase that. It's the statement Jesus just made. Did this cruel political crime happen? Did it happen to them specifically, those handful of people, because they were more sinful than others? Is that why this happened? Is that why this happened to them? Jesus says in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So here you have an event, a haphazard freak accident that took place. A tower fell over and killed 18 people in a crowd, left the rest of them alive and well, but 18 got crushed. Jesus says, Do you think that they were worse offenders, worse sinners than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Is that why they got crushed? Did this happen to them because they were more sinful than the others? That's why the others survived? Jesus says in verse 5, No. No! (laughs) I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, Here are a few takeaways. I mean, what a crazy story, all right? Here are a few takeaways. Jesus didn't see it necessary to explain, or He didn't see it necessary for Himself to explain the cause for the violence. He didn't see it necessary for Himself to explain the cause of this freak accident of the tower that fell over, or the hardships that people were now dealing with. He didn't see it necessary for them to explain the reason why this happened. When tragedy struck, when hardships came, Jesus, here in this situation, did not blame the victims. It's not because they are more sinful. Neither did He defend God from being the cause. He didn't say, oh, people, remember, this is not God. This is not God. I just want to make sure you know God is nice. He doesn't do this. So he didn't say the people who died were victims because they were more evil. And, hey, by the way, don't blame God. What's wrong with you? God didn't do this. He didn't see any of that necessary. He didn't even say what the cause was of all of this. But instead, he asks a question. What about you? What about you? What are you going to do about the fact? That the door of opportunity to live for God can close on you. And it can close on you at the speed of a freak accident. What about you, Jesus says? Can you see how quickly that happened? What about you? Or are the hands of a, or, or how about you that died at the hands of a cruel government? He says, repent, or you will all likewise perish. Because unless you repent, that will be your eternal destiny. Because the moment that door shuts, now what are you going to do? You can't live the rest of your life for God. He's saying, folks, and let me put it to you this way. Jesus is saying, hey, when when accidents happen, He's saying, when cruelty takes place, when an oppressive government murders people, like Pilate did, when a pandemic hits, what, the question you have to ask yourself isn't why. Who did this? Was it because that person was more evil? Those aren't the questions. The question you have to ask is, have you turned to God? Consider how quickly this happens. He says, repent. Repent, or you will all likewise perish. Notice that Jesus does not promise freedom from calamity. But on the contrary, warns His listeners from false self-assurances. You see, calamity falls sometimes on some people. Tragedy hits sometimes in some places. Disasters strike sometimes in certain areas around the world. However god's ultimate judgment is inevitable god's ultimate judgment is guaranteed and more certain than any other possible catastrophe that many might escape this is what jesus does with the vivid memory that these people had of both blood and rubble he helps them realize whether it is a cruel government or a freak accident these events should remind them that god's judgment is more sure therefore change your mind turn to god repent think toward god think godward live toward god now live godward do not wait now is your moment that is jesus's interpretation of a calamity that is jesus's interpretation of an of a cruel oppressive murdering governor politician so the walkaway point here is, if you are in Christ, the worst that could ever happen to you is the best that could ever happen to you. So why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? He came to deliver us from troubled hearts. He came to deliver us from troubled hearts. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? Why? Because you believe in me. That's why. Let not your heart be troubled. Well, how's my heart not going to be troubled if I believe in you? Because I have a promise for you. And the promise is eternal. It's eternal life. A beautiful mansion with me and with my Father forever and ever. You are safe in my hands. This is why Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey. To establish hearts that are not troubled and you know when we deal with hardships in life folks as brothers and sisters in christ and as a church we ought to be the ones who carry the hope and not false hope not blowing smoke blow and smoke is saying god has a plan for your life without ever helping somebody understand that they first need to make right with god who has a plan for them because you know for those who aren't right for, with god god has a plan for them too so <laughs> it's important for us to explain the whole truth of God every time, all the time. There is a great hope in Christ. There is no hope outside of Christ. There is great victory inside of Christ. There is huge calamity outside of Christ. There's so much love in Christ. There is absolutely none outside of Him. Finally, Why did Jesus come to Jerusalem on a donkey? Because He came to take away your and my condemnation. I love this. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now, therefore there is now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is only a wonderful, wonderful future ahead that we cannot even wrap our minds around. That's all that is awaiting us. You see, Christ came so that He could become our punishment, the very punishment that we do not have to bear anymore. Christ came so that He could become our worth before God which we cannot have earned on our own. As sure as Christ died, as sure as He died on a cross 2,000 years ago, are we sure that we cannot be condemned? Because death, His death, is the proof of your and my salvation. His death is the proof that there is no condemnation for you or me. Tell you what, when you look at a video, a movie of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody shouting Hosanna and cheering and singing and dancing around and and Jesus is waving at them. I always think like how funny it is because Jesus understood all things and He knew that the expectations were completely different. Their expectation was temporal. His ex- expectation was eternal. Their expectation was their circumstances. His expectation was to save and deliver them from sin and death and eternal separation from God. I mean, and he walks in or he comes in on a donkey and everybody's cheering and shouting because he's going to come and deliver them from Roman, Roman cruelty. And he's waving at them. He's probably hugging them. And, and you know what? He doesn't, he doesn't attempt go, hey, 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 you guys are misunderstanding me. You're not getting me. He doesn't do it. He goes through with what he knows, his responsibility before the Father was. What a wonderful day we have to think back to. 2,000 years ago, that day Jesus entered Jerusalem, that so much was going to happen. He came so that truth can be established and he could testify to it. He came so that your hearts do not have to be troubled. He came so that He can carry the condemnation that you no longer have to carry. He came for so many reasons, so you can be delivered, redeemed, made righteous. And this is good news. And today, as we look back to that event, may we be reminded of how good God is to you and I. How merciful our Father is to us. That event right there proves it. And may we never lose sight of it, no matter what it is we as humans have to go through in this life. Amen.